Hello and welcome to another episode in our Conversations with Sound Artists series. This is a co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. My name is Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute. And in this particular series of conversations, um, we're focusing on kind of the long-term collaboration between directors and their sound artists. So I'm thrilled to be here in Culver City on the lot at Sony Pictures today, um, talking with Edgar Wright and Julian Slater about their work together. Um, gentlemen, hello and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Hello. <laughs> Edgar Wright, um, obviously one of the um, most interesting, I think, directors uh, working uh, working today, um, has been working with uh, Julian on the sound for, uh, for his films, starting with Shaun of the Dead in 2004, and they've worked together through, basically straight through Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, uh, The World's End, and then uh, obviously this last summer with Baby Driver. Um, so I guess my first question is to both of you, like what, what's the secret of this happy marriage? Like what, 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 what attracted you to each other in the first place and how did this relationship get going? Um, I think, you know, probably based on my first experience doing Shaun of the Dead with Julian, you know, having done sort of TV before that and even done one very no budget film, like sort of nine years before Shaun of the Dead. I think, um, and this isn't the case with all the sound people I work with, but definitely with a couple of them where you felt like you were getting the bare minimum. (laughs) (laughs) And I remembered with Sean, the greatest thing about it was that like Julian, I think like matched my sort of um, creative ambitions. It's like, you know, it, it, it it was a great experience because it felt like, how can we push this further? What else can we do? You know, um, to sort of elevate what we already have, which was something that was good. But, you know, especially with a lower budget film like Shaun of the Dead, you know, like sort of like a huge amount of your production value is what you hear. People don't really think about that so much, you know, and a lot of lower budget films are sort of ruined by their sound. So here was a good example of a movie, especially in the genre it was in, where we could just take it a lot further than the money that we had, you know? Right, especially like... um Looking at Shaun of the Dead again, um, I didn't really, it, it, I didn't really realize that most of the third act is really in the pub, in in the in the, the Winchester pub. But the sound of the zombies outside is kind of this constant presence, and it really, I think, the sound design in that sense really, as you're saying, broadened it out and made it much bigger because it gave a sense of the world that was happening outside of this very contained kind of um, set piece. So for you, what were the what were some of the challenges for Shaun of the Dead? Um, obviously budget um, it's not so much challenge it's, it's more like the kind of creative playground that you, that, that, uh, that you get to inhabit uh, I think the thing with all of Edgar's movies is you know every there's never just a, a talky scene you know even if it's, like, it's the scenes in the pub when they're, when at the, at the beginning of the movie when they're talking there's stuff always happening that's either playing off about, you know, what what the main characters are saying at any one time, or even eye looks, or there's just it's never a question of. I always think with Edgar with the soundtracks, they're kind of three dimensional. They're never just a first time listen. It's there's always things that Edgar keeps, you know, wanting to put in in the backgrounds that you know are are, are reflecting what's going on with the main characters. It's never a question of just you know putting in a pub atmosphere and letting it go. It's what can be done to add to this specific scene. And that's the same with all Vega's movies, you know. He's he's one of these directors who just thinks about sound. Obviously, with you know Baby Driver, but with all of his movies, he you know it's it's in it's in the script. He's he's one of these directors who 
knows the importance of what sound can bring and he not only embraces it but he pushes that he pushes that on and through the whole process all the way through to the final mix it's a it's a never ending kind of evolving soundscape where Edgar just kind of keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and I, and and I'm thankful for that yeah so Julian just said that this is part of you know part of the script that this is baked into you know sound references um so I'm kind of curious for you Edgar you know where did that you know, I find that a lot of, especially writer-directors, don't necessarily have a, a really um, great understanding of how to use sound as a storytelling tool. So where did that come from? Is that something that you learned, you know, in film school, or did it, did it kind of come out of your early experience, or what is, was it just always something that you sort of understood innately? Well, as a film school reject, I'm going to say it was not from film school. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a very good question, actually. I think it's probably just through the appreciation of, movies themselves um you know i think sort of like i i had um i think also it's through uh, like understanding sort of like sound in movies but also just through working like sort of i remember like i'd done this uh like i said i did this uh um i used to make amateur films and uh, i used to edit them myself and then I made a really like no budget film when I was 20 years old, which was like the first thing that I did. And in all of those cases, the sound was really limiting to it. When I used to edit like films myself, I used to steal like gunshots off other movies. So part of the way that you learn is by cannibalizing other things. Is that I think if you sort of like making a movie is like, oh, if you like this toy car, you've got to kind of take the toy car apart and figure out how it works. So I think through that, having done low-budget stuff where I didn't really have the money or the tools to do like a decent mix, when you actually sort of start working in an environment where you, you have those opportunities and you can start building in ideas. Um, and the t- it was a TV show that I did um, called Spaced where we played a lot, which had some of the same editing team that went on to do Sean and Hot Fuzz and Baby Driver et al., and on those you sort of like kept building up the sort of sound like in the kind of the edit so you'd sort of go into the mix with like this wall of sound of all these little details and then I think that was a sort of for me was an interesting lesson I sort of had all the ideas and I put them all in at an editing stage but then it's in the mix is you know then finessing that I think then by the time we did Sean and I started working with Julian for the first time, there were just lots of ideas to do with the the very theme of the movie where you could express it in sound. And in a lot of cases, it was the idea of like what you would hear or not hear in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. And I always... And some of it is like you said, like Julian said, it's like the inspiration for the story. I always used to find it kind of like um, living in London. I used to find it kind of disconcerting in a big city like that, that when a city becomes that huge, like police sirens blaring past or alarms going off, or even somebody screaming in the distance, somebody doesn't, nobody necessarily does anything about it. They don't react to it. Yeah. You don't react to it. It's just like sort of, this is like, like sort of the sound of a big city. So the idea of like this being a sort of a growing sense of unease during like a sort of a zombie epidemic was really interesting and just the ideas of like car alarms going off and nobody has switched them off or like burger alarms going off like sounds of smashing glass in the distance sounds of helicopters going above you know so we built up a lot of these soundscapes not just 
and 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 to sort of like hear the things that you couldn't necessarily afford to show them but also the characters themselves couldn't see them sometimes right. when you're cocooned in like the pub or they're just in their their flat you know you you get the sense that there's some military presence or something going on but you can't see it you can only hear it um and you know even things like in Shaun of the Dead there were some great things that we did where we recorded a lot of wild tracks of the zombies on the day but we kept bolstering this we had this idea and we made a little chorus i remember mm. which i think involved members of coldplay is that right that's right yeah <laughs> i think so chris martin was he did there. yeah but chris martin has a little cameo in the as in, himself yeah he is not as imdb states a zombie let's just clear that up <laughs> on the record once and for all chris martin is not a zombie he appears as himself but one day, I think uh, Hackenbacker's That's right, right yeah. or like where we mixed the first movie, um, we gather together a little mob, including me and Simon and, and some other people, and we basically did like a sort of a zombie Gregorian choir where we would play the scenes, most of the sort of last kind of third in the Winchester, and do like a, a long zombie track where... And I would be conducting it. Of the so, moans and all that. Yeah, but it also, as, as, as the scenes became more dramatic, as people started shouting, the moans would get higher. So it was higher like... Higher in pitch. Like, no, no, it was more like getting, like, sort uh-huh. of just... So I remembered, like, doing... I remember us all standing around a mic, like, going... And you were almost like conducting like a zombie theremin. It was amazing because <laughs> I remember standing there like, being like an orchestra conductor conducting these moans. But that's something that like by the end of that, you've got like a 20 minute track. And that's something that then you can double track it or like we would play around with that on top of what we already had. But it was just to give this like, you know, sort of other dimension to it. You know, so I think that's the thing, and that's where we started working, and why Julian's done everything else. Is like, I think for a, a movie of that scope and budget, it was like an extraordinarily like well realized um, soundtrack. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and 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 in fact, Edgar, the way Edgar works, his avid tracks are really really intricate with regards to the sound and the sound design. Edgar's not one of these directors who kind of just concentrates on the picture mm-hmm. and then hands it over to me. Mm-hmm. Or he, he, you're constantly cutting with this. I mean, the way you work with Paul is you, you cut a scene for picture and then you go through and you start putting sounds in, right? I mean, it's a, it's a constant thing. It, the two things work hand in hand. Yeah, and I think that comes from when I used to do TV stuff, like there was some, especially on this show, Spaced, like the show just wouldn't work without the sound on it. So it wasn't like I would ever hand, I would never hand a rough cut into the network with no music, no sound. Because, because they would have just, no idea what they were looking at. It'd just be like dead air. It just, it just didn't work without it. Well, that kind of segued into the end of the question I wanted to ask you, which is now that you guys have done five movies together, sort of what's your, how do you work together? Like, how does it, do you show him the script before you go shoot? I mean, at what point do you get involved in the film? You know, how much time does Edgar spend on the mixing stage? You know, I'm just, I'm curious about how, how the, 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 well, the I, sausage gets made in this. In this I, I guess as as the projects have moved on, I get more and more involved earlier, right, Edgar? I mean, Edgar. Yeah. Edgar, we had breakfast uh, around the corner from his house a few years ago when he told me about uh, Baby Driver and you know when it was going to happen, and we start talking ideas, 
at that point. And then uh, the most recent two films, I think it is, I've got involved and actually come on board very early into the director's cut. I think on Baby, I was there on week four of the director's cut. Oh, wow, okay. We never have a spotting. I don't think we've ever had a spotting session. Is that like true? Even on Shaun of the Dead, where you, we sit through the whole movie and you say, "Here I want this. There I want that." I don't think we've ever done that. It's not that kind of. No, I don't think so. Not 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 so formally. I think it's like you said. It's like a lot of the ideas are there, and it's about like, you know, I I think also it's like it always becomes about doing more prep. For instance, in this one, even when we were doing. The t- like this location scouts i asked sort of asked the sound um recordist um to if she would uh, record wild tracks whilst we we're doing the tech scout really yeah because i wanted there to be um what i wanted to do is i wanted to sort of see if there were sounds that were like sort of um uh, you know indigenous is that the right word <laughs> like sort of occurring yeah, yeah. in those occurring in those um locations that we might be able to use and then it does end up informing it it's like you know like in baby driver like the first location that we were shooting in in downtown atlanta it had this tram that went by and you don't really see the tram that much but you hear it here on the logos just like you hear it like it's yeah it's literally comes up on the studio logos and then also like in atlanta like there's always it's a major train hub so there's trains all the time and then actually when you're on doing location scouts usually like if you hear a train it's like oh dear we're in trouble you know <laughs> but in this case it was actually like you know we could use these this is a good sort of punctuation throughout the movie so throughout that movie you can keep in 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 the place of like rolling thunder you can hear kind of distant trains the trains right and like right. sometimes you know in a sort of like in a tense kind of scene you like hear a mournful <laughs> in the yeah. distance so i actually and in that case of getting the wild tracks together, it was also this thing of um, uh, in this particular one, it, it, you know, it was there was an element of the dog wagging the tail a little bit because we heard, um, and this is something I could share with Juliet very early on. In order to sort of sell it to the studio or whoever was going to finance it, one of the things that I did was that I had not only had all the songs worked out for Baby Driver in some cases, it made these sound effects mixes. Really? With this uh, London DJ, who's actually worked in a sort of unofficial capacity on some of the movies, or even just on the extras on the DVDs. But in this case, I sort of needed a bit of help. So I got this guy, his name is Mark Nicholson, Ozzy Misu um, is his DJ name. And we built up these, like, mix baby driver mixes, so that when people listened to it, they could get their head around the idea. And he probably only did it with, like eight of the songs but it gave you the idea of like what the film was going to be and is that is that because in baby driver like i'm thinking about the tequila yeah is that because the there's such a tight integration of the action to the music to and i'm i'm i I can hear the i can hear the the the, you know the shooting and the bullet hits in time with it so that's all kind of stuff that you kind of almost not pre-vis but you pre-audioized so both I mean, because you have to, it isn't, so. you know, the, the editing in the movie is like a masterclass. However, it always slightly annoys me when people like fans or reviewers saying, oh, it's amazing how the gunfight is edited to the music. It's like, no, <laughs> like, it's actually the other way around. It's like we shot the scene to the sound and we choreographed it to the sound. So we'd already designed those sections. And then obviously the thing that's great later, once you've got that and it's like the, that 
the tequila one is a great example because it's building up to this gunfight but it isn't like we shot hours and hours of action footage we shot specifically for those beats and we even like edited an animatic to the music track that we'd done so that we knew like you knew exactly this this guy is doing these three shots then jamie as bats is doing these two shots then it goes back to these guys doing these two shots then it goes so you actually if you look on the on the blu-ray actually has the animatics and they're like stunningly close to the finished film then obviously the next phase of it like that's kind of like the temp but then the next phase of it is actually to sort of like create that same effect and then julian's kind of like um challenge is to sort of like maintain the sort of the fun of the idea but still sort of make it more grounded in terms of it being the right guns and then also playing with it in terms of like the balance and the i mean you can explain a bit more about the even just the kind of changing the pictures of the guns themselves yeah so 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 i guess throughout the movie it's 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 full of many many things that are obviously syncopated to the music and and it's it's a it's a you know, Edgar hands over this kind of amazing template that then I and my crew take from him and then try and kind of do a mushroom cloud of, of try and, you know, mm-hmm. explode it outwards so that it's not just the stuff you see on the screen, but stuff you hear, you hear off screen and in the surround. So for the tequila, for example, we go through and we try various different gunshots and see, and, and they're obviously in time with the, uh, with the, with the drums, but, uh, more often than not you put something in it doesn't work tonally so you take it out and you try a different gun and then you st- start to play with the ricochets that happen in the surrounds that happen at the same time and you're just building up layers and layers and layers and the, the trick with it was to you know to to make it work both cinematically and musically and quite often the two things don't work you know we the sirens for example in all the car chases the sirens whether they're the two tones or the bleep bleeps, they're always syncopated to the music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and take um, the bell bottoms, the, the 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 first car chase sequence from the from the uh, very first bank robbery yeah. and the first big car so chase. So the so so and this is this was a, a huge learning curve for me because it you know I work in a world of sound effects and right. sound design, not necessarily the music. The composer right. does takes care of the music. And I take care of the sound effects and the sound design. But on this time, I, we had to kind of each piece of music was tempo mapped, which I'd never didn't know what that was, and had to learn how to do it and how to work with it. So, for for our audience who may not know, what is a tempo map? For so, a, a tempo map is is literally building a click track that goes with the with, with the beat the, of the with music. the beat of the music. Uh-huh. And something like um, the John Spencer piece, the bell bottoms. It's not just a one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. It changes throughout the whole 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 piece of music because it's, you know, it's musicians playing live and sure. feeling it as they're doing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we tempo map, say, the sirens to the beat. But if you do that, then the siren itself, rather than just going, woo, 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 it goes, woo, 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 woo. It, it sure. changes and it sure. sounds ridiculous. So, you know, we have to figure out a way to introduce the siren when it sounds cool and sounds believable as a piece of uh, audio for the movie, but also works in rhythm to that moment in time to the music and then as soon as it doesn't we then take it out of the mix bury it reset it and then, and then it feed back. it back into the mix so, that, so it's it's like a 3d kind of jigsaw puzzle where you're figuring out what bits work where and so it sounds homogenous doesn't distract 
it sounds great as a piece of cinema for the you know see what you listen to but it also works musically with a piece of music so what i'm hearing is that the the mix for baby driver which just you know, to the casual listener, feels like it just fell into place and it's all really elegant and works really nicely together, was an, an, an enormous amount of work to make all those pieces. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, a, um, it's a constant uh, self-reflection uh, and checking with it, with that mix, to make sure that, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Edgar, but it, I personally never wanted it to sound like it was in your face 100% of the time so that you know after 20 minutes of it the audience were getting oh look it's syncopated to the to the music sure. and it it starts to wear so it it's a you know it's this thing of you know on a scale of 1 to 10 sometimes you may play it 10 in the mix sometimes you may sure. play it 2 and first time listen second time listen you may not even pick up on it but it's to make it a natural thing and not make it kind of um you know, I remember a quote from George Lucas when he was you know, on Star Wars. Just because it's a really cool scene and it's got great visual effects, you don't want to play it all the time. You know, it's a question of the audience discovering certain things within the mix. Yeah, it's about sort of modulating the balance between the music and the sound effects throughout. Like you said, like Ginny just said, it's like you don't want people to kind of... You also don't want people to get, get the measure of it. You know, one of the nice things about the movie is that the the sound is playing in different ways the the songs are all diegetic so there's no song in the movie apart from the final end credit song which is uh which is like playing a score everything else is playing either in his ears right on a record on a radio, player radio like hands. on a radio yeah. like so but most of them are in his ears so in those cases you're sort of creating this um feeling where you are inside his head and thus you know, I mean, a good example is like the scene where Dave Brubeck is playing and Ansel Elgott's listening to that with his earbuds in and not listening to Kevin Spacey. So that's like a classic example where you're you're constantly switching the sort of subjective um, angle on it. Now it's like we're listening to what he is and we cannot hear Kevin Spacey talking. Right. You know, and then that has a payoff with the fact that he can lip read. Start in the AM questions. I got a question, Doc. Why would I believe phones over here hear the goddamn word you said? You lay down your whole play. He ain't even listening. Baby. So that was the great thing is that sort of like, you know, I think Julian's right. If we had done the entire film like the bell bottom sinks at the start, it would become wearing. Sure. But it, it, it keeps sort of modulating throughout and then you know i mean the other th- key thing to me was that i wanted to do a sound uh, like a movie with a soundtrack where you weren't just fading down the music most 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 uh movies they play like a great intro and then as soon as the lyrics come in fade in and then somebody starts saying some exposition about and somebody starts talking yes exactly about the next plot point yeah yeah, about the MacGuffin that they need to steal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious to kind of go a little bit further on this theme that you're talking about about music versus sound effects, or not necessarily versus music and sound effects, because you know you said that typically you're kind of working in your sound effects world, and then, but with Baby Driver, obviously the music was, you know, it's, it was a, a huge thematic element from the very beginning. But I'm kind of curious for you, in all of your movies, like as a director, you had these two really powerful sound tools in your arsenal you've got sound design you've got music how do you decide 
what's going to go where and what what tool are you going to use? What are you going to favor in any particular scene or moment? Well, I think the thing is, and this is sort of like um, in um, especially in the last three movies, this has been something that I've like sort of kept like working on because I I like the idea. I mean, Hot Fuzz was a little different because even though I had songs in it, it was like mostly like a a, a, a score film, and um, and you know lots of sound work in that. With the, starting with Scott Pilgrim through the world's end and culminating in Baby Driver, it was this idea of like how can these things all work together? So I think the the key is actually there are several parts um, in in the world's end and Baby Driver where there is a song playing. And there is score playing, and, and there are sound effects at the same time. A song and score and sound effects at the same time. Yeah, and wow. the thing with that is, is that that's something that can only exist in the movie because you can't necessarily put it on the soundtrack album like that. But we've been really lucky in that um, another collaborator of ours who we've now worked with several times is Steve Price, who was the Oscar-winning composer of Gravity. But as we know him, the music editor on hmm? Scott Pilgrim as well. <laughs> but um, I mean, that's that, that's actually where we first worked together. He was also the arranger on that score as well with Nigel Godridge. And then actually, I had worked with him even before that. When I was first thinking about Baby Driver ten years ago, I needed a music editor to help me break down the songs that I wanted to use. So maybe about ten of the songs in Baby Driver, I knew ten years ago which really? ones they were going to be. Wow! And I asked. Um, a music supervisor said, hey, do you know a good music editor who could help me break down these songs? And he said, oh, yeah, you should meet Steve Price. So we met for coffee in London. He helped me out. And then he came on to work on Scott Pilgrim, and he worked on The World's End. Um, and then by this time, he's now like a big-time composer. <laughs> and so I called him, and I said, do you still want to – I mean, there's not – how much minutage of score is there in Baby Driver? I think there's half an hour. I think more. I think there's like forty minutes in total. Forty-five. There's forty minutes of score, maybe. I'm so. I, that's really surprising to me well, because this, I just think is, of the songs. Well, this is the thing that I think is very sort of clever about. And if you listen to it again, is and also by the way, I I, I broached it with Steve. I said, do you do you want to be involved? Because I know it's not like doing a full score. And he goes, absolutely. He really wanted to do it. And the good thing with him is that, and this has been the case in all the things I work with, is that he does um, score that is like sympathetic to the songs so if you watch the film again when score does come in you'll notice that it like you know a song might end in a key and then his score picks that up oh and then it like sort of and his score finishes and goes into the next intro so he's actually sort of like bridging these gaps and and actually making these beautiful music transitions which just sort of i always wanted the film to feel like you are watching a musical in the sense of that every scene has a different song and even in the few scenes where there is no music there's sort of something rhythmic in the sound effects it might be the train it might be an air conditioner it might be something where there's some kind of like sense of like a pulse in the background but a really good example is like steve's work which julian could break it down is like and also the the combination of song score and sound effects is like the opening 30 seconds of the movie because you can explain the, how that works yeah so uh we start off on the Sony logo, which we, we, which we pitch to work uh, to turn into tinnitus, which then Steve picks up, it goes and goes a long reverb into uh, a single held note or tone. Steve then picks up in the same. So I, so I, I, I send uh, 
Steve my idea of the pitch correction of the Sony logo. He takes it, he works his music either around it or he'll change the pitch of that and then send me his score back for that moment. I put that into my Pro Tools. Then I think what comes out of that is uh, like the tram bell that uh, Edgar was talking about that was recorded months and months before the shoot even. But then is that's pitched to work with that tone and then the brake squeak of the WRX comes out of that that you pull up and then Steve is also going through that at the same time which turns into in the same key as the uh, John Spencer Blues Explosion. So it's like an amalgam of all these different things and, it, and it's, it's what happens when there's true collaboration because I know Steve as Steve the music editor. He's not obviously the music editor anymore, but I've, you know, I... That's the relationship. It's the relationship I have with him, and I and, and he's a true friend, so I can phone him up and, you know, or go around his house to have Sunday lunch, which I would do, and we can talk about it, and there's no fear of upsetting him or suggesting something that I feel is going to, you know, offend him, or he's just much more receptive than, than um, other people could be. And it's the same thing with Edgar. It's like, it's no... Uh, it's it's no um, coincidence that you know some of my best work is with Edgar, and it's because of the environment that is that, that that he supplies. Is you know Edgar works with his picture editors that he's worked with for many years, and his DOP and his cinematography and cinematographer and and me, and we all know each other, and we all we, we have a relationship where true collab. You're not afraid. I'm certainly not afraid to suggest something to Edgar, where I'm worried he's going to say. What the hell are you thinking? That's that's not going to work. It... And we've all we've all been on mixing stages where there's no communication be- between the sound team and the music team, and everybody shows up and they they feel like they're each 100 percent responsible for the success of the film. And so yeah. then you just have this train wreck on the stage that you have to spend a lot of time kind of sorting through. And... Yeah, and that can only come pretty much from the top, from someone like Edgar, who who, who how he feels about sound and sound design regardless of the fact that Edgar has written those words, I've worked with directors who, who who have written the script and pretty much all they really care about is the dialogue, which is totally fine mm. and valid, totally fine and valid. But Edgar's a bit of an exception, certainly with regards to people I've experienced, where he, he's not only written the script, but he wants to uh, he embellish the script with the sound design and the mix. It's, you know, the two things work in conjunction the whole time. That was something I, you know, I, I when I was doing TV stuff, I used to, uh, I, I, I realized that with music publishing and licensing that like you could play two things at the same time and clear them separately, <laughs> but create something completely new. So sometimes I would have like these kind of, um, I don't know, like dance tracks that I was using in the show. And then I put a bit of library music that would go underneath, like an underscore that was leading into something else. And then, you know, with the movies, start doing that for real. Like in uh, The World's End is a good example. There's a couple of times there where a song is playing and then it's like a relay race. It's like Steve's cue is starting during the song and eventually like takes Overtakes over. It. Mm-hmm. But it is in the sort of the same tempo. And then it's like something where like sometimes people listen to it saying, oh, where did you get that orchestral version of Silver Bullet? It's like, <laughs> it does not exist. It exists in the mix and nowhere else. And I think that's one of the things with Baby Driver is that you think sometimes when it's about, oh, is there a way of releasing the movie mixes of the songs? And I said, that is that is the movie. Right, that's the experience. Like, that is the experience. It's like, I don't think you want to isolate that, like actually sort of 
seeing these like um you know there's there's other in the finale of baby driver with the queen song you know there's the song playing at full volume like in you know and, and in different um perspectives but also there's parts of the score that are sort of like coming in and out of that sequence and again like working with the music you know and steve is also great because he's like like june said he's a composer who doesn't have i mean he doesn't have the ego that some other composers do where some other composers would be like this is my part you know get rid of anything else steve's great in terms of that he is like working with what you've already done and like taking it to another place and then there are moments where like his score fully flourishes and then it's like but even he is like sort of like he is inspired sometimes by our sound design that what we've done within the sequence will give him an idea of where to take it so it is like a real collaboration in that sense there's like that scene with uh with doc when they return after tequila and they go back to the, the hideout, mm. the bananas scene. Yeah. And where it's, right. it's very subtle, but, you know, it's, uh, every, every, pretty much every sound effect that you see that, that is on screen, the dropping of the bags or the light switches, are interweaved with the score. Bananas. Bananas is a code word. Whenever a deal is done with one of my clients, they call me on the phone and they say the word bananas and then they hang up. I did not hear the word bananas tonight. So you tell me who died. We pick out the sounds, send them to Steve. Steve works them into the score. So the light switches, they go once and then two three four and then they move into the surrounds and sure. there's a repeat echo that just keeps going with the mm-hmm. with the with his score and he then scores with it and in conjunction and then he'll throw me the sounds back and then i'll adjust them again to make them work even better and it's like this constant to and fro between the two the two departments for want of a better word yeah and it sort of creates something that sort of is is it, it, it's um you know, it's kind of a surreptitious feeling because you're sort of not quite sure what you're listening to other than it's all working. That Yeah, that's a great example, that scene, because that was something that was inspired. Initially, it was two things. It was like, I had, I'd been listening to sort of like a lot of um, avant-garde artists who make music out of found sound, mm-hmm. like Matt Moss. And some guy I found on the internet, I think his name's The Quiet American. I never figured out who he was or how to clear any of his stuff. But if you're watching this, you're an inspiration. <laughs> um, but there was this thing that like he'd done this song. It was just called Three Trains. And it was basically like a lot of wild tracks mixed together to create like ambient music. Anyway, after I've been to Atlanta and all you hear is trains the whole time, I was like, we should we should do a train, you know, do something with this. I think we tempted with the other thing, but obviously it wasn't scored to it. But then Steve took, you know, picked up the ball and ran with it. And then there were great things in that. The other one is great is when Kevin Spacey, so there's the train sound of like this kind of like sound of a train coming to sort of like as a sort of doomy sound. There's the light switch echoes and stuff that kind of keep going and then become like a TikTok of the track. And there's another great one is when Kevin Spacey gets up out of his seat and the seat goes, and then it goes, and it keeps kind of <laughs> and echoing. Becomes, yeah. So it's sort of, it, and then he, uh, the, the, the general idea of that is that it's so, is the baby is so anxious within the scene 
that he's becoming sort of hypersensitive to every sound to around sound, him. Right. On top of that, whenever there's a scene in the movie which doesn't have a song playing, you are aware of his tinnitus, or tinnitus as we say in the UK. Um, tinnitus. So that was another thing that we created through sound and then also through his score to make the viewer understand what it's like when music's not playing. What it's like being in baby's head when, exactly. when the and music's not there, right? All, all of the scenes that don't have music playing have a sort of a sense of the tinnitus in sound or music. So that then when the next song kicks in and the tinnitus stops, you're like, ah. It becomes a relief when the music yeah, comes back Yeah, and then it, you understand why baby does it. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because in watching the film again, <clears throat> you know, I think, you know, when you think back on Baby Driver, obviously big music sequence, sequences, big set pieces, lots of action going on. But I really enjoyed, you know, going back and looking at it again, how much like really small, quiet, really interesting sound design you were able to kind of cut through. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking specifically, you you were talking about the tinnitus. Um, There's that wonderful little moment when uh, Baby and Deborah are at the uh, the fancy dinner together and she kind of reaches out and they do, you know, the on the wine glass Mm. that that creates the tone, which is sort of the tinnitus. Um, And it's just, it's this lovely little, you know, sound design moment that you know, maybe have has a musical tone to it too, but it really cuts through, and it, it it it's remarkable to me because you know that that's a sound design moment, but you had to you didn't you didn't discover that in post production. You had to you had to think about that when you were writing. You had to shoot it that way. So you you are always thinking about sound as you're going through the other parts of the process yeah i mean a lot of it is written into the script and then some of it comes in the storyboards and then some of it comes in choreography like when you're doing choreography for a scene like in the restaurant you know it becomes pretty simple but you the first thing you do is like say to the production and i said oh can you get us the props so we can kind of have a little play around with this thing and then ideas come out of that and then sound ideas come out of that as well i think with a lot of those kind of smaller moments you're still working in that sense of um outside of the big set pieces, the sense that, it, you know, like sort of the thing in, in real life when r- the wor- the world syncs up with the music you're listening to. So you might be sitting in a traffic jam listening to music and your windscreen wipers, mm-hmm. windshield wipers, um, <laughs> uh, are in time with the music. And like, and you might notice these things or like, you know, a particular guitar solo starts and the sort of the sun comes out and it's like, oh, the, you know, life is in time with my music. And the idea with Baby Rover is it, it's all like that. Right. There's not like a moment where that's not happening. So we're always trying to create things that were on beat, always looking for real sounds that actually happen, whether he's like flicking money or Kevin Spacey's counting money sure. or like, you know, even just... um which I think some other good examples. But yeah, I think those things, you're always looking for those things where you can create an extra sort of like, you know, motif that makes sense in the scene. Yeah. In the first scene with the bank heist is like the alarms right. kind of kick in at the right point in the music, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then I'd go, for, I'd go for walks in London to try and get inspiration for other sounds to throw in. Yeah. So for example, the... Harlem Shuffle, when Baby's mm-hmm. going to get the coffee, 
there's a whole load of things that are happening off There's screen. a tremendous amount of sound design work yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's filtered yeah. there's into There's like that, a road drill, song. a pneumatic right. road yeah. drill, someone drilling yeah. by the by the, um, the by the boarding, and and that's me kind of just walking through London trying to think, okay, what other things could be thrown in there that we're not necessarily seeing visually, yeah. but we can hear off screen. Yeah. yeah, we actually, with that sequence, that was one of the ones where we'd done this rough kind of sound effects mix. And in that case, all of the sound effects are just things ripped off the internet or whatever, you know. But there was that chatter, like, so we'd put, like, sort of people chatting in the street. And then I thought, oh, that's kind of... So we could do a thing where, you know, do this, like, Robert Altman-esque thing where you're walking through other people's conversations and you hear them. (laughs) So then when we did the scene, the people in that sequence who do talk are, like, mic'd up for the entire shot. This is the coffee run sequence with Harlem Shuffle. <clears throat> which, is so, like, which is like what three minutes it's a it's, it's a, a long... three minute shot yeah. yeah so those people everybody could hear the song we were either playing it out loud or they were listening to it on earwigs but some of those key people can hear the song so when they talk they are in talking rhythm. in rhythm with the song yeah and they're just doing it the whole time so by the end of that you got a wild track that's three minutes long of like how many people in that scene like eight mm-hmm. like Something a bunch that. of them and also they're not in in it the whole so the street preacher that you can hear we recorded him for the whole thing oh that's interesting and so you can hear him like when he's not even in vision sure, sure. and then you see him and then he's still behind and then there's like sort of like at the start of the shot there's the guy outside the store saying like where are you right like you know you know and then at the end of it he's berating that guy and says be on time yeah and he's doing that in time with the music also you see like there's a trumpet player who at the start of the shot is walking along with his kind of suitcase and then at the end of the shot he's playing along with Harlem Shuffle and he's in the back of the shot playing it live but he's listening to Harlem Shuffle and recording it so all of those separate things all of those guys are mic'd up and then I guess we did wild tracks with them as well mm-hmm. you know so that we had like an entire like sort of slice of life of what you could hear on the street. I mean, exactly what Julian was saying, I would do that when I was writing, mm. is sometimes I would drive through LA, put my um, radio on the automatic scanner. I mean, not scanner, you know when it kind of just tunes through? Sure, yeah. It's trying to find something, and I just record that on my iPhone. Hmm. Because then, in, 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 in sort of inspiration for the bit where Baby's trying to find the right song, right. is that the kind he of thing you can't, just... He can't get away until he finds the right song. Yeah, and yeah. also, you know, when you drive in L.A., like, you could be going for about five minutes before you find Led Zeppelin or something. <laughs> you know, it's just like getting through uh, the religious channel as like a slow bit of traditional Mexican music as like another slow, like, ballad... Oh, this is like a smooth song. Oh, oh great! Here comes Led Zeppelin. Let's get, let's let's just drive. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like, so, um, so, but I I recorded those things, and it was also just interesting hearing like snippets of the news. Yeah, you know, we did a lot of stuff even after we'd finished filming. We wanted to build in lots of radio reports. You hear a lot of the radio, and so wrote all this B dialogue for like newscasters. But we just went back to like Atlanta stations, even though we were like mixing in London, and just approached a bunch of Atlanta DJs and said, "Can you read this?" Because you needed authentic Atlanta voices, right? Yeah, and I was kind of all of those people fun. are like thrilled to be involved, sure. and then you know, and then when the movie's out, they're going, "Hey, if you listen closely, you can hear my voice in the Harlem Shuffle." Hey, scene. that's good. That's good. That's good promotion. So there's probably too. about seven real Atlanta DJs talking in there, which is, and they will do it for nothing for like takes them 15 minutes yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. kind of more authentic than a loop group you know of course and, and of fun. course i feel like dolby atmos was invented for that harlem shuffle scene <laughs> just the How whole so? thing well like a good saying you know you've got things that are happening you know it's all from 
you know, Bayer's babies walking along and the POV of him. Sure. And all these things that are happening that you don't necessarily see, but are happening off screen, of course, with the. the well, and we you have. can get you can get so specific in, in yeah. placement and stuff is yeah. competing with each other yeah. up in the front channels. You know, it's stuff that you, you can't obviously do with six speakers, but you can do with a whole array of speakers. And that was my first time, or both of our time, first time doing something in Dolby Atmos oh, native. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what a, what a great way to. Well, you guys made great use of the format. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. So, I'm, I'm, Julie, I'm, I'm curious for you. I think one of the things that is kind of a hallmark of Edgar's um, kind of visual style as a storyteller is there, there tend to be, you know, especially in some of the comedies, like a lot of um, sequences with shortcuts, um, interesting camera angles. Um, kind of compression of narrative into little into, into very small chunks, but it also sort of it it that has a very specific kind of tone from the storyteller about like you're going to go on an interesting journey. This story is not going to be told in kind of the traditional way that you may be used to. So, what is that? Obviously, that's a gift for you as a sound designer. But how does that influence what you're doing on the on the sound effects tracks? Well, I think it's. It's it's interesting to note that obviously as Edgar's directing style is changing, so I mean from Shaun of the Dead to Baby Driver, Shaun obviously had Anne Hot Fuzz, had lots of those smash cuts and mm-hmm. those kind of things happening and, and there's less so in Baby Driver. So uh, you know I'm I'm keeping up with Edgar and how, mm-hmm. how he's changing as a director and, uh, and 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 evolving my sound design tastes. To follow what it is that Edgar's doing, uh, you know, picture-wise, and what he's asking, stroke demanding of me. So I, you know, Edgar drives the drives the truck, and I, I jump in and, and follow on behind and and try and hold on. Julian's brought up an interesting kind of topic. How how is your style changing as a director? Well, I think in that in that particular case with those narrative shortcut things. In in Shaun of the Dead, like you have all these, I, I I thought it would be funny to like have these, you know, quite um, uh, ominous like action cuts that sort of seem like they would be, you know, from like a a Tony Scott movie or something, but they were for really mundane things. So in Shaun of the Dead, like all of the opening shots like that is like making tea, making toast, like brushing your teeth, and but it's building up to finally like a a gun loading montage in the finale. Hot Fuzz is sort of similar thing, but like a lot of the kind of the montages and that are detailing the boring part of the job because the bit that you never see, the paperwork and just mm-hmm. all the bureaucracy and seeing that in these like sort of, you know, like how would how would Michael Bay shoot a scene of people of having to file out <laughs> hours of paperwork? So that was sort of the joke with that. I guess the slight difference. And so I, I like that style. And it's also something where you kind of, I think as a director, you're letting the audience know that, like, sort of, that, that um, like you said, you're being taken on a journey. It's like, sort of, like, you're forcing them to pay attention to different things. So it's not just like, you know, like a lot of contemporary comedies are sort of, like, barely directed. It's like they let sure. the actors kind of, right. like, run it. And this is different. This is more stylized by design. The Baby Driver, there's a few less of those, mainly because the song is kind of like guiding it to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I wanted almost like the, every scene in Baby Driver is a different song. So like um, sometimes it switches, but for the most part, it's like a song 
per scene. Um, and as such, like you're sort of led transitions-wise by what the intro is or what that's doing. And because things are happening more in real time in Baby Driver, there's less time for those kind of compression of um, time transitions. There's a couple of them, but for the most part, it's sort of doing a different thing. So I, I think that's the thing is that you also don't want the kind of the audience to be completely up to speed with what you're doing and start mixing it up or like sort of um, subverting things. <laughs> so I guess that's, I guess that's it. I mean, in, in, um, in baby driver, like the, the action plays out longer in places because of the nature of what we're doing. And I think also it's like, it's funny cause I sort of become known for those quick cuts, but then in a lot of the movies, there are some really long shots as of well. Of course. Yeah. But right back to Sean, and I think Baby Driver even more so is that there are like longer developing masters. So it is that thing where I like that sort of style of like quick, quick, slow. It's like you sort of Contrast. like yeah, you're always like sort of keeping people on their toes, you know. So it was always important to me in Baby Driver that they were like as as well as like some sequences that was sort of very intense in terms of the amount of imagery. There are also some action parts or some romantic parts like the the restaurant scene is a good example like where it's playing out essentially in one setup yeah i think to your to your to your question as well because each movie that edgar does is so different either genre wise or right. stylistic wise obviously they they all they all stand on their own as separate things and and sonically they sound totally different you know and appropriate to the story and I mean, we, haven't, we haven't even really talked about scott pilgrim well I, yeah. I, 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 which, well also another has... good example not, is in the world's end a good example of that uh, uh, uh another one that i think is a uh, is um the sound of like um like cell phone interference the yeah which is always the sound that creeps me out yeah because when people sort of say oh like cell phones give you cancer i always think that that is the sound of it because it sounds like terrifying it's a terrifying sound and when you hear it you think i'm getting cancer yeah right yeah now. no totally I, it does actually freak me out and i don't take as many calls and i do more texting partly because of that sound so in the world's end that sound is happening all the way through and it is incorporated into Steve Price's score. Uh, so if you start to notice once the kind of the robot invasion starts to happen, you'll start to hear that sound more because it's a sound that makes me uneasy and it's a sound that we then like built into the sound design and then the score. That must have been a very difficult mix for you. I mean, they all, sort of they're, they're like, <laughs> they all have their challenges. <laughs> I mean, Scott Pilgrim is, is another a hugely ambitious mix in terms of the amount of stuff that's going on in that movie. Well, yeah, and just appropriate to the subject matter because, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not, a, I'm not a big gaming person, but I, I'm presuming that there's a huge amount of gaming stuff that you pulled into you know, and Easter eggs in that track. And mm, there's, it's mostly all original sounds mm -hmm. designed from the ground up to... Evocative of yes, eight bit, yeah, yeah, absolutely, very rough and, and, game sound as and like in in Scott Pilgrim, each fight sequence is distinctive. Is distinctive sonically. The punches in the Roxy fight are different to the punches in another fight. Steal my boyfriend. Taste my steel. No, no, Scott. This fat ass hurt me, and I will have my revenge! Right now! Hey, 
you know, each separate fight in that movie sonically has a different signature, yeah. and, and, and that all obviously weave together, yeah. but they're all separate with regards to how they sound. Well, Julian, I, I, I have to ask you, you know, obviously you don't work exclusively with Edgar. You you, you do what? other you do you do other films. <laughs> this is coming as well. Well he only to Edgar, makes films obviously. once every three years. So <laughs> But you just to just to call out a few, you did some work on Mad Max Fury Road. You supervised Attack the Block, which is I think a, a just a wonderful sounding film. Um, in Bruges, which I think most people don't necessarily think of as yeah. a, like a sound design extravaganza, but was a really kind of just a, a, a very lovely track. So, I mean, not naming names or getting yourself into trouble, but like how is working with Edgar different than working with other directors? Uh, first and foremost, it, it because we've been working together so long and because Edgar uh, has allowed me to become part of his creative team, the involvement is for me is come, I come on board much earlier and I'm much more part of that process and I can I feel like I can I can help or guide or or uh, you know advise Edgar even before the the the, the shoot uh, um so there's there's that aspect and there's also you know obviously just the fact that Edgar is a is a director who and I'm for me cares about the sound process to 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 the to the to the maximum degree and 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 will never um will never let go of something until we just keep polishing it and polishing it and polishing it and polishing it there are many more directors that i work with who 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 are passionate about sound and, and do care about sound like selfishly with something like baby driver where the the sound scape has been it's in the dna of the script it's what mm -hmm. edgar it, you know from when Edgar first started writing it, he's thinking about it. So for someone like me, it's someone texted me the other day and said, uh, in fact, yesterday, who saw Baby Driver and said, uh, um, I wish I could work on, you know, I wish I could work on movies like Baby Driver. And my reply was, I don't know when, I, if I'll ever get to do it again, because it's, <laughs> right. it is a, you know, it's a very special I, I know that whatever, if Edgar so chooses to work with me again, I know that it will be a, a, a sonic uh, a rewarding thing for me sonically because of the way Edgar works. I know whatever Edgar does, Edgar could do a, a, a um, you know, a, two people talking in one location, and it'll be it'll it'll be a rich and rewarding thing for me because Edgar will look at it and and figure out things to do with the sound and not just have it as this is the picture, this is the sound, the sound just follows the picture, and the right. two things are kind of you know. So yeah, I just feel lucky. I mean, genuinely just feel lucky. So Edgar, one last question for you: If you were if you were mentoring a young filmmaker who was just starting out, what would you tell him or her about why sound design and sound effects are important? I think, um, like I said before, I think you sort of it, it's something that I remember hearing early on about like the way to make if you're doing a low budget film, the way to make it seem more professional is make sure the sound is as good as it can be, and you can notice that like um, as soon as you watch something that's like sort of like you know a, a zero budget movie like i was watching some like independent movie from like the 60s um I, there was like a cult movie and the sound was so bad it was like it, i had to s turn it off at some point because i couldn't kind of like sort of like um, it was painful right? it was painful <laughs> to listen to so i think that's the thing is i think sort of it's something that like um i don't think that when people are like aspiring film directors 
I think they're sometimes just thinking about the coolest shots. And I, you know, maybe they think about editing, but they don't really think about that aspect as well. And obviously, the, they go hand in hand. And like the, the great thing about um, doing Baby Driver is it was really, I think it was in my initial pitch, it was like a sort of, you know, like said, like this is like designed to be seen large and loud, you know? Um, I was thinking actually, it just reminded me, somebody said on the internet, and I can't remember who this person is, but um, it was the, almost the best review of the movie. Somebody said, just after it came out, said, Baby Driver is the best movie I ever heard. <laughs> and great. I thought, that's a great review. <laughs> yeah. That'll do. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to wrap it up than with that. Thank you, anonymous Twitter person. Oh, there you go. <laughs> thank you. Well, um, thank you again to Edgar Wright and Julian Slater for coming in and spending some time uh, with us today and talking about their remarkable collaboration across these films. This is Glenn Kaiser wrapping things up for the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank, thank you. you.